Well, turn with me, please, this morning to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, as we continue to make our way through this great book. You'll notice, or I'll, I'll draw your attention to the back of the bulletin where we put the announcements, and usually at the bottom of that back page, we'll put a question and answer from one of our catechisms or confessions of faith. But today, I put an outline for the sermon in there. Several of you are notes takers, and you've told me that seeing the structure at times is helpful uh, in taking notes. So I'll probably begin to use that space to put a sermon outline in there. Then you don't necessarily have to jot down as I give the points, but that structure may help you follow along uh, and take your own notes as well. So you'll find that there on the back of the bulletin. Romans 2 is our text, and I'll read verses 1 through 16. Hear now the God's word. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, And their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them? This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. In the story of the rich young ruler, a man comes to Jesus and asks him, Good teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. And Jesus gives a shocking answer. He says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And when the rich young ruler asks which commandments, Jesus lists many of the ten 
commandments. If you want to have eternal life, obey God's commandments. Now, if you've been in church for any time at all, that method of evangelism may strike you as somewhat strange. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible teach that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone? I bet many of you have memorized Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. When Paul was asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Paul simply answered, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Why do Paul and Jesus seem to give divergent answers to such a basic, fundamental question. Are we saved by faith, or are we saved by keeping God's commands? I mean, why does Jesus, the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost, why does he tell the young ruler to gain eternal life by keeping God's commandments? Can we have eternal life on the basis of works? Well, the passage we have read this morning answers those questions. And it resolves the tension between the two principles that we've set up. So last week, we studied the revelation of God's wrath against human wickedness, the second half of Romans 1. No one escapes the judgment of God. But what if someone listening to Paul's argument thought, well, I think I can escape God's judgment. And that person might argue that they will avoid God's wrath because they are better than other people. Yes, Paul, those wicked things exist, but I am better than those sins. Or they may think, well, I belong to God's covenant people. So when Romans was written, I'm a Jew. Or in our context, I go to church. I'm a regular attender at church. And that will shield me from God's judgment. Or some may say, yes, I do wrong, but I also do right. I do more right than wrong. And so I can have a righteous status because I obey God's commands. And we, we all do this in, in one level or another, whether it's always trying to be a newer, better person and just mustering up enough effort. We all do this in, on one level. So how does Paul answer those claims? He does so by laying down the standard by which every person will be judged. Verse 6 reads, God will repay each person according to what they have done. If you want to appeal to who you are, if you want to appeal to what you have done, then what standard will evaluate those things when it comes to God's judgment? This passage gives us that answer. This passage tells us how to evaluate those claims. So let's listen to this passage because it shows us how we can have eternal life on the basis of works. It's what this passage does. It will show you how to have eternal life on the basis of works. And it will set two ways before you. Here's the first. It will give you eternal life on the basis of your works. 
That's one road you can try to go down to get eternal life on the basis of your works. So according to verses 1 through 5, you can have eternal life if you avoid every sin. Paul opens with the statement, verse 1, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. So this is an answer Paul expects to hear after saying everything he said at the end of Romans 1. I mentioned this last week, but I'll say it again. Not everyone would have been scandalized by Paul's denunciation of idolatry and immorality there at the end of chapter 1. I mean, some of those words are not popular, but not everyone would have been offended. In fact, Jewish people in particular who possessed God's law, they may have been cheering them on. Yeah, Paul, you go get those pagan Gentiles. In fact, there's a Jewish writing. It dates about a generation or two before Paul. It's entitled The Wisdom of Solomon. Now, this isn't a biblical book, not an inspired book. It's part of the Apocrypha. But it gives you insight just as a historical work. It gives you insight into how Jews in Jesus' day and in Paul's day thought. So there's a section in the middle of that work where the author talks about Gentile idolatry and Gentile immorality and all the sins that flow from those sins. In fact, it resembles Romans 1 in certain lines of thought. It's a similar argument. The Jews were happy to condemn the Gentile world for its many sins. But the author of wisdom also says this, talking about Jews, we will not sin because we know that you acknowledge us as yours. For neither has the evil intent of human art misled us, nor the fruitless toil of painters, a figure stained with various colors. What is the author saying? We haven't been deceived by idolatry like the Gentiles have. Now that's where you say, okay, have you read your own history? But that's where Paul says, hey, hey, not so fast. You may have condemned idolatry, and you're right. Idolatry is wicked, but you've got it wrong. When you think you aren't guilty of the same kinds of sins. And if we say, well, how could Paul say that? How could he prove that? We could think of it two ways. You could think of how Jesus handles the law there in the Sermon on the Mount. You can say you haven't committed adultery. But if you lust after a woman, you have sinned in your heart. So can anyone read Romans 1 there and say, okay, I haven't done the actions and I haven't even done the big ideas behind those sins. No one can claim that if they know their own heart. Or maybe, here's the other logic Paul may have been assuming. Okay, maybe you don't do some of those things. Maybe some of those things haven't ensnared you. But can anyone escape the wide net that Paul casts there at the end of the chapter? Verses 29 through 31. No, no one can. It hits everyone eventually. And so that's why Paul is saying, if you agree with the judgment I lay down at the end of Romans 1, then you are also condemned. Because everyone is guilty of those kinds of things. And furthermore, as Paul 
goes on to say, if you are guilty of these sins, then you need to repent. Because you're in danger of God's wrath. And if you don't repent, you're digging yourself farther into a hole. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against itself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul said in the previous chapter, the wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness and wickedness. And maybe someone would say, oh, I don't see that wrath being poured out on me, so I must be good to go. Things are going well in my life. I must be dodging God's wrath. No, Paul says. The fact that things are going well for you are a sign of God's kindness. That is a sign of God's patience. He is holding back his wrath in order to give you time to repent. But if you don't repent, then all that time that God gave you, well, that will only result in more wrath being poured out on you on the final day of judgment. The more you put off the day of repenting and surrendering to God, it's like pouring a cup in a bucket. And one day that bucket is just going to get kicked over and it's come washing over you like a flood. Or maybe another analogy is, it's like delaying paying a bill. You've got this bill you have to pay, and maybe you just don't feel like paying it, and so you ignore it, and it keeps racking up fines, and it keeps racking up interest. How foolish would it be to say, oh, I'm not paying that bill each month. I must have more money. Putting off payment doesn't cancel the bill. That doesn't give you more money. Eventually, that bill is coming due, and that due date will be even worse Because you put off paying it. So do you think that you can escape God's judgment because you are better than other people? At the level of God's law, we are not better than other people. You know the common saying, the ground is level at the foot of the cross? It's a common saying, it's true. I heard another preacher turn it around. The floor is also level in front of the judgment seat. We may think that we are better than others, but that is not the standard. The standard is avoid every sin. It's not sinless than the next guy. It's be sinless. Avoid them all. And no one in this room can do that. So we're not off to a very good start, are we? In our quest to have eternal life on the basis of our works. So let's try another strategy. According to verses 6 through 11, you can have eternal life on the basis of your works if you never give in to temptation. So verse 6 establishes the one of the main ideas of this whole passage. God will repay each person according to what they have done. On the last day, God will judge every person according to the life that they have lived. And again, depending on your background, you may think of that judgment differently. You may think of, oh, there's this special judgment only for Christians, and that happens when the Lord comes. And then later, there's this judgment for unbelievers. I think the the timeline the Bible gives us is, God will come any day, and there will be one judgment. 
So everyone will be assembled before his throne, and God will judge everyone according to the life they have lived. Now that may at first strike you as strange, because maybe you're used to hearing it said, oh, when you stand before God, you will go to heaven or hell based on how you responded to Jesus Christ. So if you accepted Christ as your Savior, you'll go to heaven. But if you rejected him, you will go to hell. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad way of explaining it, but that isn't exactly how Paul phrases it here. Here he says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. You will give an account of your life lived before God's judgment. And Paul isn't alone in this. This isn't some random phrase we don't know how to interpret. Listen to Psalm 62.12. You reward everyone according to what they have done. Proverbs 24.12 asks, Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? In Revelation 20.12, the great white throne judgment, a frequently preached passage reads, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. At the final judgment, God repays you according to what you have done. So, what do you have to do to satisfy God's judgment? Verse 7 reads, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Likewise, verse 10, there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first to the Jew, then for the Gentile. Both of those verses refer to those who do good. They essentially sum up a person's entire life as spent pursuing that one dominant goal, doing good. If you spend your whole life pursuing the good, you can obtain eternal life. Now, I grant that gets a little tricky, right? Because people default to saying, well, I'm a good person. I pay my taxes, I do my civic duty, I volunteer my time, I go to church occasionally, I think the way you're supposed to think, and I act the way you're supposed to act. That's how we use the word good. But that's not how Paul defines good. He defines it here in verses 7 and 10 as a whole life spent pursuing nothing but Good. And who among us can say that we have done that? None of us. I think, if we're being honest with ourselves, we'll find ourselves much more in agreement with the description Paul gives in verses 8 and 9. Those verses read, But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew, then for the Gentile. So if you think, oh, I'm good, well, ask yourself this question. Have you resisted all self-seeking? Have you always embraced the truth? Have you never followed evil? 
I can't answer yes to any of those questions. And if any of you think you can answer yes to those questions, either ask your spouse or your roommate and your parents, and they will set you straight. None of us can satisfy that standard. Or here's another way to think about it. If you think, oh, I put myself in the category of the good, which category are you more likely to put other people in? Because that's probably the category they're putting us in. When we ask ourselves which of these two categories we fall into, the negative one is the most likely. And just when we think we can hide behind our religion or we can hide behind our good works, when we can hide behind anything else to to push us into that category of the good, Paul says in verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. The judgment of God is impartial. In fact, the makeup of the Greek word suggests he doesn't regard the face. God doesn't look favorably on one face and despise another because of superficial appearance. As Paul will go on to say, there is none good. No, not one. And so the bad news is we can't make a good enough impression on God to make him approve us. By the way, I would say that's actually good news. So the bad news, it really is bad. You can't earn your way into God's favor. But that implies something good then. The good news is that God already loves you. That he isn't the superficial friend who dumps you because you don't satisfy him anymore. He can't get anything else out of you. So he moves on further up the ladder, more into the inner ring. He isn't the one who only likes cool people or athletes or rich kids. God sits with the kid who's alone at the lunch table because God doesn't show favoritism. But if you want to satisfy that God on the basis of your works, if you want to try to play that game, well, then you better never give in to temptation. And that rules out all of us. So one last way we should consider on how to have eternal life on the basis of our works. Here it is. Obey God perfectly. Now, have you ever had someone tell you a story? Maybe it took a long time to develop. So it was a good story, but just you weren't sure where it was going until it finally paid off. Or, or a joke, but the setup was just really long. Well, Paul has actually been doing something like that in this passage. He's been assuming a principle, and it's been driving his argument. But he waits until this last section to reveal it. So look at verses 12 to 13. For all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but... It is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Why is God's judgment impartial? How can God avoid favoritism? Because he has one standard of judgment. Perfect obedience to the law. Why do the Jews who have the law not have an advantage eternally over those who don't have the law? Because possessing the law does not justify it. Only perfect obedience 
to the law justifies? Why is it not enough to be better than others in order to escape judgment? Because the standard isn't be better. The standard is be perfect. And that is the standard that Paul finally lays down here in these concluding verses. So when he says do good in verses 7 and 10, it's because he knows he's about to drop the bomb of verse 13. That do good means do perfect. And just when you think, well, okay, maybe someone can escape the standard because they're ignorant of it. Well, look at verses 14 and 15. Maybe say, I didn't know better. Well, 14, 15. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. Here Paul refers to people who don't know God, but they sometimes do the kinds of things that God requires. So I'm not saying they satisfy God's standard. I'm not saying they earn a righteous status. Think of what we saw in Romans 1. We all Sin. But what Paul means here is there are people out there and they've never read the Bible. You probably know people like this, right? And yet they do some things that are at least consistent with God's law. They have orderly principles of behavior. Paul's point, uh, one author puts it like this. Paul's point is that Gentiles outside of Christ regularly conform in their behavior to basic moral norms reflected in the law of Moses. They honor parents. They refrain from murder and robbery and so on. So again, you've probably met people like that, right? They, they don't go to church, but then they're decent on certain levels. Well, Paul refers to them here because he's been hitting insiders pretty hard. He's been hitting the Jews pretty hard saying, you know, you can't do enough to satisfy God. But lest you think then, well, being an outsider... Hey, that will get me off the hook. Paul says, well, no, you don't, you don't get off the hook either. Because the same standard applies to you and the fact that you know right from wrong on one level is your way of admitting there is a standard and people will be held accountable. And that agreement with God's morals, far from saving them, will actually only condemn them on the last day. That's why Paul says, yeah, sometimes their consciences defend them. But at other times, their consciences accuse them. And everything will be revealed on the last day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as the gospel declares. And that will include you and me if we have not perfectly obeyed God's law. So how can you have eternal life? On the basis of your works, it should be crystal clear that no one can have eternal life on the basis of their works. And that's why Jesus told that rich young ruler, keep the commandments. He wanted that young man to realize that he couldn't. Because when that ruler said, yeah, I've kept those since I was a little boy, Jesus said, okay, go sell everything. Let me put my finger on the one issue here, the one commandment, maybe even thou shalt not covet, was in Jesus' mind. And he was going to reveal to that young man in his heart of hearts that he was not obeying all of God's commands and that he couldn't have eternal life 
by keeping the commandments. So what's the solution? How can we have eternal life on the basis of works? That's the other idea. You can have eternal life on the basis of Jesus' works. So let me just show you how this works in the few minutes we have left. The burden of the passage is to establish our condemnation. That's the point. We can't end the sermon there. We have to give the good news. So just quickly, look again at verse 6. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Verse 13, those who obey the law will be declared righteous. Now with those principles in your mind, listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Why did Jesus come and start as a baby? Why did he live a perfect life? If all he had to do was just pay for your sins, why did he just come down, die on the cross, and go back to heaven? Well, we needed some teaching. He could have done that in a quicker time span. He came down and became a human and placed himself under the law, as Paul is careful to say here, in order to live under the law for you and me. To earn a righteous status in his, our place. And if you think of just the whole shape of the life of Christ, it it conforms to that pattern. He's baptized to say, I'll identify with sinners. But then when he goes into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan, he does what no human before him did. He says no to temptation. He obeys God's word. He puts no other gods before him. He doesn't make God into his image. He does where Adam failed to do, what Israel in the wilderness failed to do. He obeys his heavenly father, and he goes through his whole life living like that, being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And then he dies in our place. He lives in our place. And then he dies in our place. And how does God reward him? What does God repay to Jesus according to his works? God repays him by raising him up to eternal life. Since the righteous one suffered unto death and committed his soul to God, even in death, God gives him his due eternal life because of his obedience to the law, and that is an eternal life that we have if we enter into union with Him through faith in God's Son. That righteous life, that righteous status, that hope of resurrection, escaping death, that can be yours if you trust in the one who obeyed God perfectly. And that, friends, that's the logic of the gospel. That's what's driving Romans. That's why the righteous live by faith. Or, perhaps better, the righteous by faith live. If you're connected to the one who is righteous by faith, then you will live. It is shared with us in Christ. But not only is a righteous status shared, But we don't want to omit to observe, he also shares with us the power 
of a transformed life. In verse 7, Paul says, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, I've already told you, you've got to read that in conjunction with verse 13, that only those who obey the law will be declared righteous. I think the main idea of verse 7 is it's giving us a principle. If you can spend your whole life doing good, if you can do things perfectly, then you'll have eternal life. And as Paul makes clear, none of us can do that. However, at the same time, Paul knows where he's going later in Romans. He will eventually talk about Christians in the coming chapters who through union with Christ put sin to death. So if you ever read Romans, you know what's coming in chapters 6 and 7 and 8. The indwelling spirit produces obedience to God's commands. So we can say that on one level, Christians persist in doing good. And they seek glory, honor, and immortality. Now, we'll do it imperfectly. But because we are united with Christ, God will accept our persons as righteous. And he will accept our works as righteous. Again, because he accepted Christ. So there are good works we do that are the fruit of our faith and they are accepted as righteous because Christ perfectly obeyed for us. What you need to get from this passage today, all that transformation is coming. What you need to get from this passage today is simply this. The doorway into that is faith alone. You can never earn your way across the threshold. But if you trust in the one who perfectly obeyed, then you'll have the status and then you'll have the power of a transformed life. And that is why Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So simple question, friends. Do you have eternal life? Because you can't get it through your own works but it is promised to you on the basis of Christ's works. So let's give thanks for that, and let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we simply pray this morning that you would bring forth much fruit from your word. Grant that each person here in this church will be saved, that they will have a righteous status, that they'll be justified by faith alone and Christ alone. I pray that for the little babies growing up, even now in the nursery, that they'll hear those truths from the first day and embrace them and love them and rest in them, and that we all would know that that is our identity and that is our life. Father, I also pray, I just pray earnestly before we move on, Lord, that you You would just root out any kind of self-righteousness in us. Root out any kind of self-dependence. Root out any presumption so that we would be people who know Christ by faith. And then, Father, I pray for our community as we prayed earlier. Give us that transformed life by the power of your Spirit. Make us hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And make us hungrier and thirstier. And then fill us as you promised to do in your word. Grant then that we'll walk with our heads held high because we're in Christ, that we'll walk with humility because we're in Christ, and that we'll walk with holiness because we are in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.